Hello, and welcome to episode 378 of RPG Fans, well, mostly weekly, but currently bi-weekly podcast of many topics. Um, I am your host today, Zach Wilkerson, and uh, today we're going to be talking about Final Fantasy VI, but we're going to be talking about the second half of Final Fantasy VI, sort of from the floating continent onto the world of ruin and then through to the end of Kefka. Um, so, uh, before we get started with that, I'm going to go ahead and introduce our panel, starting with uh, Lucas. Hello. And Lucy. Hello. And Alex. Hey, I'm back. Hello. And Ben. Hi. And so, we have all at least come close, very close to finishing Final Fantasy VI and at least YouTube the endings, which, you know, no shame in that. <laughs> Almost everyone on this podcast has done that at some point, because uh, I can tell you uh, it's a lot sometimes to play games on top of doing everything else um, that you have to do with the site sometimes. So, um, but uh, we're going to be talking about sort of, um, you know, uh, this game changes a lot in the second half. Um, and it changes in some really interesting ways. And uh, I said the word special a lot in the last podcast. Those of you who are listening probably remember that. Uh, but I do genuinely think that um, one of the things that sets this game apart um, from other games in the genre and in the medium is... Um, the second half of this game and, so, and some of the non-linearity it gives you. And it also gives you just enough direction um, in some really interesting ways. But I want to, before we get to the world of Ruin, we hadn't quite finished up last time talking about uh, the end of the world of balance. I think we had gone up to the floated continent um, and we had gotten up to that point. And I want to kind of talk about the events of the floating continent first, because I think the events of the floating continent are so critical to what um, makes the rest of this game as interesting as it becomes. So uh, as, as those of you who have played it are aware, um, you know, Kefka uh, basically uh, moves the uh, warring triad around to create what's called a floating continent um, where like the world sort of like a, a portion of the world lifts and he goes up there. Uh, and the idea is that he and a Burgershall are going to, um, harness the power of the warring triad to take power over the world. And it feels like a, a final dungeon um, in its construction. It feels like a final dungeon, at least this time for me in its difficulty, it felt like a final dungeon because like I had, had encounters turned off like for like the first like half of this game almost. And when I got to the floating continent, I paid for it. <laughs> when I got to Atma weapon, weapon, I paid for it. Um, it was very challenging. So um, let's talk a little bit about the events of the floating continent um, and about people's opinions uh, about that before we get to talking about sort of the openness of the world of ruin. So what does everybody think? It really hits you like a ton of bricks because suddenly this game goes from a lot of political intrigue to suddenly there's a very good chance that this whole world is going to crap. And it does. Yes. Spoilers. Wait, no. <laughs> yeah, and it's uh, also like quite interesting how uh, it like just lets you bring three party members. I can't remember if there's like an in-game reason for that, but you only get three, and then uh, you see immediately once you land, you see uh, Shadow just lying there, and you, you pick him up. It might be even like your first time getting him into the party, depending on how... Um, things went earlier in the game and um yeah it just suddenly this this character that seems so peripheral to everything is suddenly seeming like much more focalized and uh yeah he gets some really interesting moments uh into the the, the dungeon like uh, some real real hero stuff from from kind of this ninja that was supposed to be kind of this elusive very selfish dangerous figure i mean not to be the well actually guy but i'm pretty sure in thamasa you have to have him as well right is that accurate 
Oh yes, okay. that's that's very the one where briefly. You have to. Yeah. yeah. Very briefly and at that point after you complete the one mission that you do with him, he has a chance of leaving your party like one out of 16 uh, for uh, like one sixteenth out of uh, for every turn. So basically he is a very unreliable character. Yeah. Clearly has like his own motives, his own things going on. And then uh, yeah, during floating continent, some very, very surprising stuff comes from him. And what'd you think of the floating continent first time around? Yeah. um, I thought it was uh, definitely like, maybe the hardest part of the game uh, up to that point and even harder than a lot of the stuff that comes after, um, which I thought was good. Um, it definitely feels very like climactic um, and you, you know, you, you almost feel like, Oh, you know, I think if you were playing this for the first time with no knowledge, you might think oh, this is like the end of the game. And um, I think that makes the, the world of ruin part, you know, more, impactful because it's like oh no there's actually all this uh you know another half basically to the game that's much different and and uh how it's it's structure and everything so um yeah i i really enjoyed it um compared to some of the content that was before for sure yeah, it's interesting because i think um and i could be wrong about this and some listener please correct me if i'm wrong on this but um when i when i first bought the game like i had a map that came with the game and on one side, it was the map of the world of balance. And I was like, oh, OK, that makes sense. And I turn it over. And I'm like, oh, it's a map for the world of ruin. What does that mean? And I was like, I don't know, 10, 9 when I when I got this. Um, and so I'm like looking at it and I'm like, huh, that's weird. Um, but I still when I first hit this moment, like I thought for sure this was the end of the game. Like it felt climactic in a way that was important. And like Kefka being there felt appropriate. And I was like, oh, all right, all right, all right. Um, and like the emperor is going to like turn to be good against like his evil underling Kefka. And like, no, Kefka annihilates Gestalt immediately, which I think is a really powerful and intriguing moment. And then like, as you see these lasers floating down, like and destroying the world, um, even as like it, it almost feels like the world of ruin uh, twist in video games is like the Star Wars twist at the end of the Empire Strikes Back nowadays. Like everybody who plays this game probably already knows about it. Um, but I think it, even as a person who now is playing through it for like the sixth or seventh time, it still feels really powerful and really impactful. And like seeing like as the world is like crunching and collapsing and uh, cracking apart, like seeing like these sprites like fall into the earth. Like that is a level of darkness mm-hmm. that I, I think is almost like even as a person. And I can say this because this is going up well after my review of Final Fantasy 16 is going out. Um, it it influences the game up through the most recent entry in a lot of ways. Um, And I think that's a really interesting thing, like that it's willing to go that dark in very few games. I think when it's not pixel art are willing to go as dark as this game does. Yeah, that's true to like represent that kind of thing and kind of full 3d graphics would not only be extremely expensive, but like extremely dark to look at. And I, I still personally think this is the most interesting representation of like an apocalypse happening like during a game that like i've still like seen to this date just because like like the the whole color palette of the world changes when you're in the world of ruin like suddenly those like greens and browns are replaced by this like like brown and red kind of hue and like then the the uh, overworld's music is just like this really like slow 
um like oh, kind yeah. of gritty so of yeah yeah really, even before really well searching done. for friends becomes what it is which i think i like almost as much as tara's theme like whatever i can't remember what the name of the one you get at the beginning of the world of ruin is but like it's so appropriate um it's so good yeah it's like very oppressive it starts with like just like kind of like the the sound of the wind going that you would hear at like the very beginning of the game kind of when Terra biggs and wedge are kind of overlooking narsh so it's like an interesting throwback to to that um and yeah yeah just like we, we could talk more about the music in this game but yeah just and the fact that like all your you know party members are gone everything just really feels like hopeless you're on that little island it's just an, an incredible representation of like an apocalypse happening and, and before we move to my favorite sequence in the game which is that moment on the island um did everybody save shadow this time Yes, oh, gosh darn it. Of course. Because <laughs> I know some of us, and I'm not naming any names, Lucy, um, <laughs> but I know some of us, the first time they played this game, did not save Shadow. Because uh, those of you who don't remember, uh, maybe who are listening to this and haven't played for a long time, at the end of the uh, floating continent, like you beat the boss or whatever, like, everything happens. Like Kefka fires off his laser and starts destroying the world. And like you have to escape the floating continent. Um, and it's way easier on the Switch version because you can just turn encounters off um, and you can sprint as well. That all makes it way easier. But you get to the end and it's like, hey, do you want to go? And like Shadow was behind earlier trying to like make sure Kefka didn't actually destroy the world. And uh, they're like, hey, you want to go? And you're like, yeah, I'll go. And Lucy, in fairness to you, the first time I played this game. Now, granted, I, I was I was nine, so it might be why. But um, I jumped. <laughs> I jumped when I got to it. So like I never got shadow in the second half of this game, but you have to wait until there's four seconds left. Or maybe it's three. I don't remember. Um, <laughs> of course you remember now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, trust me. I remember. And, and it's if, really- you, if you jump shadows dead, man, that's like some fire emblem stuff there, man. Like it's awesome that they even allow that to happen in this game. But not only that, if you get there with less than four seconds, to the ship, you automatically jump. It doesn't even give you a cha- a choice. Oh, really? Yeah. That's wild. I did not know that. That's frustrating. Everybody else made the right choice, though, right? They, they waited for our boy Shadow? Oh, yeah. And I also <laughs> just think for, for some more context, like, with these pixel remasters, we have, like, the very generous, like, autosave uh, function, but, like, uh, back in the day, like that, the, the time would be like ticking down. Like your last save point was like yeah. before you fought Atma Weapon, before you watched like that cutscene. And so if if you're um like there, there's a lot of pressure there to be like, oh mm-hmm. my god, if I if this time runs out and and I don't get Shadow, like I got to do all that over again. Not only that, but if you correct me if I'm wrong, but before in the original, you if you open the menu at all to change gear the timer would still count down now yes, in the pixel remaster, so. pixel remaster it stops when you open the menu and it's like okay i could use that little breather <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean like i actually think that's one of the interesting things that makes the pixel remaster in some ways slightly weaker like i think that that sequence sequence lacks the urgency that it had originally like and i remember as a, as a kid playing this game like i f- remember feeling like that sequence was incredibly urgent. Mm-hmm. And here it's like, oh, well, I, I, you, I can sprint. I can turn off encounters. I'll be fine. Yeah. Um, I got there with like a minute and 45 seconds remaining this time. It, it feels like, um, you know, in a lot of ways, the Pixel Remaster definitely feels like a game that was made um, with people who've already played the original experience, the original in mind. So that's like one of those things where 
it feels like they traded convenience for, you know, the original um, intent or feeling that they were trying to convey. And like, I think probably when they were making the game, you know, back in the, uh, you know, SNES days, they would never have considered allowing you to like have that, you know, moment where you can pause and like not have the the timer ticking down. Um, Yeah, I agree with that. But, you know, people are older and the developers, you know, people at Square are older. So, you know, you got to go to the bathroom more when you're old. So you need to be able to pause. <laughs> well, and having that option is good for like accessibility oh, for sure. reasons and lots of other modern conveniences as well. But it's definitely, yeah, it lacks the impact in a, in a certain way. But that gets into that whole, you know, Elden Ring has to be hard conversation yeah, yeah. i definitely don't want to open that can of worms no. ever um but uh, <laughs> um but i i do think that there is something to that like it is a, it's a different experience one way or the other like um like for me this time i was just like i don't want to deal with that like i've done it before and i think ben's right like i've played this game a bunch of times in the original iteration and so like i had like ap turned up to like four times experience the whole time because like i don't want to grind out ultima um like i will but i don't want to um so like it's just like it, everything just happened so quickly for me this time um but i do think that it um and, and the game itself i think um is a little bit easier but i think that even without it like the ability to sprint in that section alone um makes it go significantly faster um so it changes the experience and so i think it's an interesting it's interesting conversation to have um, about what these pixel remasters have done to the experience i know people usually complain about like the extra dungeons or whatever i don't really care about that um, they're good, like in Final Fantasy two, I think, and otherwise, I think they're just like filler. Um, but um, yeah, uh, but that does lead us to uh, the collapse of the world. Um, the world collapses, and everything <laughs> everything ends. Like you lose, the bad guy wins, uh, it, and it feels momentous um, even now because it's not a thing that happens frequently even now in video games, and, and so you find yourself a year later uh, having been asleep for a year, which I'm not really sure how you would do that. Like without IV fluids um, on this place, but uh, you find yourself playing about it too hard. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Whatever Uh, you find yourself uh, as Celeste waking up a year later on an Island out in the middle of the ocean being taken care of by her mentor and the engineer Sid, um, who is also falling ill as time is going and you wake up and you're not around anybody and everybody else who originally washed up on this Island had already committed suicide. Um, and it, it, it just puts you in such a, such a place. Um, and I, one of the ideas is that you're supposed to play kind of sort of a mini game, um, on the Island, which is that, uh, Sid is falling sick as you get there. And you're supposed to help him. But it is an incredibly difficult minigame, apparently. I've only tried to do it once. It was my first time playing the game. And I was able to do it successfully somehow, which is luck, um, which is save Sid. And then he stays alive. But if you don't give him enough fish or the right kind of fish, he dies. Um, and he just dies. And then Celeste is a moment, which I'll talk about more here in a second. But I have to ask, did anybody here save Sid? Yes. I I did. Ooh. Yeah. I am not a sociopath. I am going to try and save people. Gosh darn it. You killed Shadow. Stop. <laughs> I let Sid die. Um, and I, I've saved him in the past. Um, honestly, like during my, my last playthrough of the game, like around like 10 years ago. And um, it, it just didn't have like that same kind of narrative impact that letting him die does. 
like um and honestly like if you if you're not if you're playing the game for the first time and you don't like look any guides like there's like basically no chance you're gonna save him true story first time i played this game no guide i managed to save him i don't know how it was Whoa. just pure luck oh, wow <laughs> i have no idea because like, it literally is to an extent luck because you don't know what kind of fish you're going to show up that part is random unless you like have some way to manipulate it and not always do the right fish show up like sometimes exactly. you'll go and you the only way to reset it is to grab a fish so you'll have four slow fish so no matter what you're going to backstep and it sucks and takes forever <laughs> yeah i couldn't be bothered with the fishing minigame so that is a totally legitimate way of thinking about it and i think that most people um think that narratively the game is more interesting. And to me, like it feels like almost canon at this point, because I've done it yeah. so many times this way um, to not save Sid. Um, because uh, when you don't save Sid, like Celeste is like alone, isolated on this island. And she walks up to a cliff and she throws herself off of it, um, which, again, feels like it feels like the kind of narrative moves that people can't do anymore. Um, like that, th it would be like a thing that would like explode on Twitter. Like, oh, why didn't you give us a trigger warning or something like that? Um, like it, it's, but it, it it's narratively so powerful in communicating the despair, and it, and it makes sense with who she's been previously. Like Celeste is struggling with who she's been previously, and like sort of the evil that she's done, and now she's alone on an island. But I do have to ask, like, why didn't Sid just tell her about the raft to begin with? They could have gotten on it a while ago. <laughs> yeah. And how did he leave that letter um, yeah. after he died? It's like, I'm going to die. Let me yeah. toss this out of my very <laughs> purple wetsuit. Is this another one of those Titanic door situations? <laughs> I mean, when you're following up with that, if you do save him, why doesn't anybody come get him and take him back to the mainland <laughs> yeah. afterwards? He, he just sits. He just sits in his bed for like the next ten, fifteen hours, however long it takes you to beat the game. <laughs> just, just don't think about it too long. He doesn't even sit in bed. He stands in front of the bed, going, "I'm all better now." That's the only line he says. <laughs> so I fully understand that it does like undercut the the message, but it's one of those like there's so much wrong going on and you're so alone that you want this little bit of positive mm -hmm. at least that's the way i always thought of it you know I, I totally understand that um and i like the music there too like celeste's theme i think that the in the pixel remaster whatever negatives i have to say about like the way it changes the game design like the music is so good in the pixel remaster Whew. um and I, I felt like this time as she was coming off the cliff um it, it hit like a truck um and I think it's always been like, to me, the most powerful moment. Like it's so brave um, in terms of storytelling that it's willing to do that and willing to go that dark um, in a way that uh, yeah, I, I just don't think video games can do nowadays. Yeah. Um, and for it to be so, so powerful, it's just like the 16 bit sprites and just like the little effects they do, like as she's falling and the music is just like, yeah, re really, really powerfully done. Yeah. One of the words that I kept coming back to as I was, trying to think about talking about this game this time was cinematic. There are mm -hmm. a lot of very awesome cinematic moments, cinematic musical moments where they, you know, the score and the, the scenery, even like the camera movement, which it, at a game at that point in time was complicated is really impressive for evoking exactly what they want. Yeah. There's like kind of like musical motifs at play using like character themes and like bring those in at like specific timings. I even feel like there's almost like a, like a visual motif with Celeste kind of looking out 
left um, top of the cliff to like her in the opera scene, kind of looking out left, tossing the flowers. Like the, it did remind oh, me of that right. as well. Um, so yeah, just like the this kind of cinematic kind of visual language and uh, audio, audio language. It's just, uh, yeah, really good point. So you're saying Spirits Within exists because uh, they, they cut their <laughs> teeth. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't going to go there, six. but... <laughs> you know, I am a bit of a Spirits Within defender, but I will not be doing that today. <laughs> uh, and I, and it, it, what you guys are talking about, though, it reminds me of like, the earlier moment with Madwin and uh, Tara's mom, I can't remember her name. Um, and like how, like in like a minute of game time, like, I feel like I felt that in that minute of game time, the relationship between those two um, and the ways in which like they're moving um, around each other. Um, and it, it plays around with pixel art in a way like in pixel art after this game, you know, three years later is basically gone. Um, like it still gets used occasionally now in like retro games, but um it definitely feels to me like in some ways, like I think that there is more beautiful pixel pixel art, like Chrono Trigger, I think Dragon Quest Six. if anyone's seen the Super Nintendo version of that. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Suikoden 2 or Breath of Fire 4 uses some pixel art on the PS1. But in terms of like using it for storytelling purposes and being willing to experiment and not knowing if it's going to land <laughs> and doing something different and new, uh, I think this game does that really well. The amount of emotion you get out of the little finger wag (laughs) the one pixel going back and forth and how much that evokes it's just like so cool yeah just one little animation and suddenly you know exactly who edgar is as a character it feels like and he's the one who uses it the most and it's how you recognize him when he shows up again exactly yeah yeah that's true which speaking of, um, I guess we can kind of move on to the rest of the game now. But, you know, honestly, like our conversation is going to be really open from this point, um, because those of you who have played uh, Final Fantasy VI know that um, after this point, the game opens up dramatically um, in ways that um, I-, I think make it really interesting to engage with. Like, I-, I remember playing it without a guide, like as a kid, like I remember having to really work to find all these little nooks and crannies, but playing it as an adult. I can see how the NPCs consistently tell me what to do and where to go. And if I'm paying attention, like I know how to do these things now, like I played the game enough times, like I don't need to talk to anybody. Like I'm like, uh, as soon as they tell me to go to like Mount Zozo, like I'm not doing that. I can go to Narsh. I'm going to go grab Mog. Uh, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go do that. I'm going to go grab Gal over in the Velt. Um, and so you have so much freedom. Um, and so I kind of want to just like kind of open it up to like your favorite moments, like in terms of like the sequences that you liked the best in terms of like also like, how you feel about the world of ruin versus the world of balance. Um, because I feel like a lot of people prefer the pacing of the world of balance. But like to me personally, I think so much of the great storytelling of this game is buried in the world of ruin um, that it it's interesting. Cause like originally I read an interview recently, like they weren't originally planning to even do the world of ruin. Like it was like they were ahead of schedule and they were like, Hey, this game feels kind of short. Well, what, what should we do about that? Oh, let's do this. And they make the world of ruin happen. And like, I think that that is such a, like a, a magical way of talking about art. That like, it's just like an accident. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, like the first person you get is probably Sabin. And then you can probably, you technically only need to recruit three people, Edgar and Setzer, and then you can go fly to Kefka's tower and take him down. But that's, that's not how probably most of us played. So what are some of your favorite moments from the world of ruin? I have to say, once again, it's Edgar showing up as Jared. <laughs> 
or Gerard or what, how, however you're supposed to pronounce that. I think it's that. Jared because it's uh, an anagram for Edgar. Edgar so, yes. yeah. <laughs> and he's really fooling everybody with his. Uh... <laughs> yeah, he's he's all like grayish. <laughs> I love how, how Sabin is there and he just lets him get away with it because Sabin <laughs> doesn't have to be there. He's technically optional, but like, come on. <laughs> Well, that's actually Saban's a bit of, of a meathead, so <laughs> he really doesn't <laughs> he know. Really but I, I will have, I have to say that Saban has some really fantastic moments in the world of uh, Ruin between A, letting his brother get away with it, and um, then when, if you have Gao, you can go find Gao's dad, and him basically being... Gao's foster dad being like, no, 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 we have to make this absolutely perfect. We have to get you dressed up perfectly, uh, perfect manners and show him you're awesome. Only for it to, you know, slap in his face. But it's, he just, there's something about Sabin's little run through the world of ruin that makes him an essential character for me. Well, even before that, like you first meet him and he's just holding up an entire mansion (laughs) by himself like we were talking about like last episode just like the way that this game manages to incorporate like very like serious emotional moments and like just pure silliness that's only possible with like kind of this 16-bit pixelated aesthetic and Sabin holding an entire house while you like go in and save a a kid is just like another really good example of that but yeah just regarding the the world of balance versus the world of ruin um I think I made this uh, analogy in my uh, Final Fantasy ranking, but like it, it feels to me like like Mass Effect One and Mass Effect Two just rolled into the same game, just kind of separated two different halves. Because like Mass Effect One is just like this uh, like well paced story with like interesting characters and um, like it's just like well paced, well told, and just like kind of like this fun adventure. And then Mass Effect 2 is just like kind of more this non-linear thing. You're just given uh, kind of the suicide mission as the objective kind of near the beginning of the game. And then it's just like, recruit your crew, uh, get ready, and uh, we're going to do this thing. And then the actual storytelling ends up being very character-based in in a really cool way. It kind of drawing on uh, the different characters from like the first half of the game, or in Mass Effect's case, the the first game itself. And... um, just like kind of uh, Mass Effect 2, um, you even get like kind of these loyalty missions for a lot of the characters. Like uh, reuniting Gao with his dad is a kind of like loyalty mission. Uh, getting um, bringing Sabin to reunite with his master, where he learns uh, his like strongest move, Phantom Rush. I mean, it's I like only that. like a two minute segment, but it feels like this kind of substantial character building moment, <laughs> nonetheless. It's the first thing I do as soon as I get the ship every time I play this game. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's <laughs> just it's such so a game good breaking. Move. <laughs> yeah, oh my god! <laughs> and also now, not even having to do like the real kind of no Street Fighter just, you, input. You can just do like auto battle, and he's like, "Oh, he just does it immediately, over and over and over again." <laughs> yeah. to, to be fair, you could always do the inputs that way, even on the original version. It just didn't imply it the same way didn't make it as obvious yeah i always thought that i had to like take my finger and kind of like move it in a circle like very smoothly around my controller and last time i played it before this was on an emulator and that did not work very well which i I wish i had known that (laughs) i fully admit that actually just before we started playing this i ended up getting the hori controllers for uh the switch because they have a dedicated uh d-pad on it uh and that made it so much easier to input uh for this 
Yeah, yeah Sabin's really good. Yeah, I remember playing it on an emulator, and I think like another trick you were technically able to do with the original game is instead of doing like diagonals, you just repeat the yep. the input before it. So it'd just be like left, left, up, up, right, right, down, down, left, left, up, up. Well, that's what I that's what I did this time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was funny that they brought um the Duncan back. <laughs> because I remember last time I thought he was dead. Yeah, well he he was supposedly he was dead. I remember talking last time about how uh I thought that part was so weird. And then he's like comes back and it's like <laughs> it never happened. It's very strange, but like sorry I killed your son. Can you teach me my final <laughs> <Yeah>. move now? <laughs> yeah, it's very odd, but I mean it's cool. It it I think it makes a little more sense. Um the way that it happens in, in the world of ruin for him to teach him like the final technique and everything. But it was just funny. I, I didn't expect that at all. And Duncan's got a cool cape for some reason. Always, always <laughs> thought that was kind of weird for a martial artist to just be walking around with a cape. No capes. <laughs> Though the other reason I love the little Gao sequence that you uh, get if you, t- you know, you have Sabin and you take him to go see his dad is that everybody gets their fashion sense insulted. Um, as you're I, going through this. I totally uh, forgot about that because I didn't do that this time, but it's such a good moment. <laughs> and he ends up wearing like a duplicate of Setzer's suit, uh, which is like the only time you see this little sprite, which is like completely um, superfluous, but it's great. And then you're just like, aw, they really are his foster dads. Yeah, it's a very, very wholesome scene that kind of just allows like... Uh... It really just brings all the characters you have together and allows you to kind of see them interacting together in this more lighthearted way. So it's a very cool scene for sure. That actually is something that I really wish there was more of in the world of Ruin. Like that scene is one of the best ones, but I think the obvious reason is because of how they would have to program it with, you know, at that time and not knowing which characters you were going to have in your party at any given point. There's just a lot of scenes where I know like we brought up uh, (laughs) recruiting Strago where, you know, he literally walks up, has two lines of dialogue with Realm as long as you've got her. And that's the entirety of the recruiting. And there's so many characters that I wish you just got to see more little moments like that moment with Gao of them coming together, especially because at the end they're talking about this like found family kind of feeling and that is one of the better examples this uh the scene with Gao. but there's a lot of other characters that don't really get that moment yeah so a lot of the characters feel like pretty superfluous i think um there's just so many of them and it's 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 so hard to like develop like even just like a more like normal or manageable cast of characters much less like the huge cast that you have um, I mean, their their need as like a some you know, especially the the two characters that you can get in the in the world of ruin as like a, a novelty or you know something, um, something you know unique gameplay wise and, and everything. But it's just it is a little bit of a shame that they don't really they they don't all feel like fully fleshed out characters. I guess the the thing that really made me think about it was there's the scene at the very end right before this fight with Kefka. And everybody goes around and says, you know, why they why they're fighting. And I kind of had that realization of this feels a lot like when you go around at Thanksgiving and <laughs> like half the people kind of give the cop out. Oh, well, friends and family answer. I'm 
I've never heard that described like that, and that is amazing. I hadn't ever thought about it that way. And you're, it just you're giving me really PTSD struck right me this now, time. Okay? I hate that crap. <laughs> because, I mean, a lot of them would have the same answers that they would have given at the beginning of the game. They didn't actually change or grow at all in from when you recruit them to that point, and they're concerned about the same things. And it just... I love all these characters. I just want more. <laughs> yeah, I, I can definitely understand that. And like, kind of just like going on that note of just like wishing that there was more like unique kind of character interaction based on like who you have in your party at a given moment, even like who you're, who's kind of like at the, the head of your party. Like a lot of just like the world of ruined dialogue will just like, like, you, you know, like how like a, when a specific character is talking, like it'll show their, their name at the, the top of the text box. Like for the world of ruin, you're just you, there's no name. You just get like generic dialogue. Um, so it would be nice, even like if there was some like individualized character dialogue based on like who you have as the your party lead. It'd make it feel more personal, also like kind of based on like who you want to be your party lead. And um, yeah, yeah, like it's definitely kind of like the the weakest point of the world of ruin is just like kind of a lack of characterization at a lot of points, just kind of working with the assumption that who knows who's going to be in your party. I mean, the one benefit of having Edgar as the, your head of party for parts of the game is that he gets a 50% discount at uh, the item shop at Figaro. I mean, that is a good reason. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that you guys say that because like for me, and I, and I think the criticism is totally fair, um, but it's never really occurred to me because like I am always sort of attracted to the moments where I think the character development is really strong. Um, I think there are plenty of moments that character development in the second half of this game is really strong. And I think honestly, um, and it's one of the earlier things you can do in the world of ruin. And it's always like one of the first things I can do. Like I get Sabin and then I go and I hang out with Tara. Um, and I think Tara's character development in this game in general, like I know that there's supposed to be like no main character, but like, Honestly, like when we're thinking about character development, Tara is the one who develops the most by like a pretty wide margin. Now, granted, she ends up right back where she started helping the returners, whatever. I understand your point on that. But like, I think that I'm um, seeing where she was in the world of balance and the difficulty she went through there and then like her finding a purpose in Mobiliz, Um, and like the fact that the first time you try to recruit her, you can't, um, I think is really, really compelling personally like even today i think it's really compelling that um she goes and she gets housed by this like i can't remember what the thing is called well what's the name of the monster uh, Fumbaba. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Fumbaba. Yeah. yeah 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 she he, she gets absolutely destroyed um and then as time goes she recognizes that in order to help her found family like she has to do something about it and i think that's really strong storytelling is everybody else feel good about the the terror sequence at least yeah i think i think you're right that um you know even if like maybe plot wise she still ends up back where she started at the beginning i think from her own character perspective like in terms of her own agency it's very different because at the beginning of the game you know she's literally a slave and then everything that happens after she's kind of just being like kind of trucked along by the other characters and the returners and you, you do you know, have some input in that, but it feels very much like she's just kind of along for the ride. And after, you know, um, protecting the the orphans and, and Mobleys, I think 
you know, she has that scene earlier with Leo on the airship where she's like, I don't, you know, know, you know, how do I, can I really be human? You know, having this kind of existential crisis, I guess, and him, you know, saying, no, you'll, you'll find, you know, people that you love and your reason for, for being. And then you do see her find that. And so her, from that point on, it's more like she's doing all of the, you know, the, the, the things she's on the journey um, to defeat Kefka because of her own reasons, not just being like pulled along by all these other forces that want her power, need her for, you know, her role to play or, or whatever. Yeah. And she also is the character who in the end has the most to lose if things go wrong. It feels like for me personally, because, you know, she has all these people who are basically dependent on her back in Mobilis. And you also have the facts that if magic completely disappears she might it might completely cease to exist yeah no i just to be clear tara is one of the characters that is more dynamic and i didn't want to imply that she wasn't <laughs> <laughs> before the hate mail starts coming in um i think that tara's and uh, like the whole uh scenes with Locke and Celis, uh some of the stuff with cyan and being able to put his past behind him um you know all of those characters definitely are more at the forefront of that there's just some of the others that i don't that don't get that spotlight moment that don't get that attention yeah i get what you're saying it's very much like an unevenness in terms of like who actually gets like these kinds of fleshed out recruitment slash like loyalty missions versus something like strago where it's just like ah grandpa why are you in a cult oh i don't know let's go back to the airship (laughs) like that that's definitely like a valid uh criticism that one in particular but one of the other ones for me that's always i i love shadow's characterization throughout it we talked a little bit at the beginning about him getting that heroic moment and you know when i was a kid i loved shadow because he was an edgy ninja um but once i found that the dream sequences and you learn more about his past and you get that whole sequence, which I don't think we've brought up, but since this is the spoiler cast, you know, the fact that he is at least heavily implied to be realm's dad um, is a thing that is never really, it's explored from dream sequences of his past. So you, the player know it, but the characters never actually get a chance to talk about it. Well, and, yeah. And then he decides that even after you save him, decides to. Um, yeah. Without ever getting a chance to reconcile, without actually getting a chance to address any of it. And I like, forgot. I, just, how, I forgot how like, like it's, you know, in the ending sequence and you're just like, wait, what are you doing? Why aren't you? What? I spent that time saving you. What the heck? <laughs> You killed him again. Yeah, I mean, it just goes to show, like, kind of what an interesting character he is throughout throughout the whole game. Like, he's just always, like, so elusive, both in terms of his personality and in terms of, like, actually trying to get him in your party. Even when you, like, first discover him in the, the cave in the world of Ruin, like, still, you don't end up recruiting him. You end up, like, going back to, to the town where he's kind of resting, and suddenly he's gone again. Um, and if you talk to an NPC, you find out he goes to the Coliseum, and then you can finally uh, recruit him again. But yeah, he's just, like, this incredibly, like, tortured figure that just does not seem to, like, even want, like, a future. Um, it's a really interesting character that I, I don't think has been replicated in a similar way in, in any other RPG. I mean, no, I agree. I, I think that um, 
you know, I, I, I think this game had replay in mind and like sort of um, finding secrets in mind. So like I think it'd be, yeah, about even like the Gao sequence that you're talking about or the shadow sequence, both of which I think are really strong. Like there are things that I, I honestly can't remember if I found them the first time I played the game. Probably not. I know I know the shadow sequence because um, I didn't really use him. Like I had like one party that I pretty much used the first time I played this game that I never saw. But like for me, like it's like, a- as you're saying with shadow, like from a gameplay perspective, like him coming in and out of your party becomes part of his characterization. And I think that it uses the gamification of the game for lack of a better term to, to do characterization in ways that nowadays, a lot of times, um, even in something like final fantasy 16, which is a brilliant game. Like they just do it directly. Like, it's just like, Oh, like this is just like a TV show that you get to like do some fights in between. Um, and I think that it's cool that they do it in a way that it's like, it's hidden in the same way that his past would be hidden and you getting him or losing him is part of his characterization. Um, you know, even like um, the sequence where you first get Setzer, and I don't think Setzer is super well characterized in this game, but the sequence where like you're walking down those steps and you're getting those memories of Daryl um, and just like how precise they are in those moments, like I think is really powerful and moving. Um, and the fact that you're moving down those steps, kind of getting back to Lucas's idea of like the camera. And it's like so much about like him, like descending into his memories. Like, I think there is so much powerful storytelling here i'm um, sort of hidden within um this sort of simple game yeah i mean to, to the point of just like having that like, it's a really weird passage that going down that stairs because it, it doesn't actually feel like you're in a place anymore it's just kind of like this black background and um you hear that that variation of setzer's theme that you don't hear anywhere else in the game and really he he's kind of like a scumbag as a character um like the way he wanted to like capture celeste and like felt like he had like ownership over her and and things like that he, he's not like a particularly like good character um at all until that point but then like there's just like kind of this hint of of humanity that gets developed there and uh yeah it's a very memorable sequence i wish daryl was a playable character honestly because the I mean, little we she get is. of her She's go go. <laughs> that is my favorite. Is, is this ter- a yeah? <laughs> it is. A, it is I, I was on Game Facts in the early two thousands. Thank you very much. <laughs> For the record, listeners, that is just a fan theory. If you want to go find out about it, you certainly can. <laughs> I actually don't believe it at all, but it's it's a fun thing to theorize about. And then we continue. I'm sorry, or don't. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> how, how do we even follow up from that? <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I guess I could I could talk about kind of my favorite um, recruitment slash like loyalty mission in the uh, in the world of Ruin, which which is Cyan, because um, like that's another character that I think is uh, is treated really well throughout this whole game. Like uh, everything that happens to him in the world of Balance is like absolutely tragic, just like a really really tragic figure um and then in in the world of ruin you kind of like come across uh miranda again the town and uh you see like you're kind of like visually cued to go to this house because there are like pigeons around there and and you go uh find out that like somebody's getting love letters um and you end up following the pigeon to to mount zozo and, and there's cyan just kind of living as a hermit in a cave writing these love letters because he's 
clearly still really broken up about losing his family. And so you kind of get him to like overcome that trauma, um, help help the the person that he's writing letters to overcome their own trauma of, of losing a loved one. Um, and then you end up uh, at some point, if you find out about it, uh, taking him back to Doma and uh, sleeping um, in, in the, the inn there. And uh, you see these little, little three demons coming out and they say they want to take his soul and they kind of just hop into his little sprite body. And uh, somehow you're, party ends up doing the same thing and suddenly you're in this like weird lcd uh lsd <laughs> sorry uh, dreamscape i mean same uh, same I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean and, it is uh, yeah, lcd depending on what screen you're using yeah yeah there you go <laughs> this is the pixel remaster after all um and uh yeah you kind of just have to uh literally battle his his demons for him to to, to rescue him and uh after doing that you get a sick sword you get sick new moves that are actually usable in this version of the game indeed and um yeah just just really love that whole segment yeah i mean i think that sequence that sequence is excellent i just wish you had a little more warning like even like the last time i played this game which was i don't know like maybe a few years ago um like i went into that sequence like not really remembering and like i had to grind (laughs) inside of the dream in order to be ready to fight the bosses because i kept dying um i think that's like the one part like as a kid like, I think I almost gave up on this game. Um, and it, it, it gets like a little bit of that, like, you know, 16 bit design. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think that otherwise, besides that minor quibble, which this time I went in totally ready and like I obliterated everything. The beginning of the sequence is pretty hard, too, if you yeah if you don't put the right character in the right slot. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, I, had, I think it's uh, Mog has to be in the last. One. Yeah, I always <laughs> put Mog in the last slot so you can just start with the Moogle chart. Um, that's a good idea but that's a good idea <laughs> if you don't know I, that i had celeste i think or tara you know one of the the you know one of my main characters uh so i was fine this time but yeah in the past like i think last time i think a, like amaro or something and let me tell you that sequence is not easy if you're playing as amaro <laughs> <laughs> i have to admit i i did not use amaro at all good call uh, this this time around i did uh kind of break the game getting um one particular rage that basically has almost a 90 percent hit and once it uh takes uh takes place the the enemies never actually hit you ever again so you just wail on them c- completely it's great is that the magic pot rage or no it's the reflessia uh, or the it's one of the it's the only way you can get it is you fight the flowers that are in oh those uh, guys yeah uh, in the realm sequence right yeah yeah and it's completely missable and i had found it like not this time the last time and i was like oh my god this makes everything so much easier and it kind of breaks the game but it's fun in the same way because you get these characters uh, these enemies just basically hitting themselves to death i think we talked a little bit last time about how breaking it is part of the fun (laughs) i mean like every single time like i go into the like this time i was like i'm not gonna worry about stat manipulation i'm not and then like i'm like wait i just leveled up and i didn't have magic plus two on seven oh what what? i i have to reset right now (laughs) (laughs) like i don't need to do that but i did anyway i can't help myself he Um, really needs it 
I, I like I, I I'm a min maxer at heart. I wish I wasn't. I think it's a an unhealthy thing. Uh, but I I definitely did it. But yeah, it's it's a great sequence. Anybody else really like the science sequence? Because I certainly did. I want to know what happened to all those silk flowers that he made. He collects them, but then we never see him again. And they're not in the inventory. I know. We get those random books that he has lying around that don't really do anything. And that clearly didn't do him any good because he has the book about simple machines, but he still struggles with the button in the end sequence. <laughs> <laughs> I got the feeling that he was doing that on purpose, though. Well, don't forget about his book, uh, Bushido in the Bedroom. <laughs> oh that's right that is right uh, I, I forgot about that i wish i still forgot about it <laughs> ready to get back on that horse oh my god stop stop <laughs> oh ben what was the sequence you really liked to the end of the game yeah um i mean i i mean i have to say the the going to to mobley's and um getting Terra and that whole sequence I think is is definitely the most impactful of all of these. Um, I think uh, there's a you know with with the ending since we're mentioning that a little bit the fact that um uh, like Katarin like has the the baby um, like and that's interspersed with like the the end of the game and them escaping I think is just kind of like a nice thematic like moment um, of like. There's, you know, it's like new life or whatever for for like a new beginning kind of, you know. Um, so and that kind of being established before um, and, and that uh, when you meet Tara and, and the orphans and everything, I just think it, it's a it's a cool kind of tie in towards the end. Um, so it's probably my favorite part. Yeah. And uh, I forget what those uh, characters names are exactly the ones that uh, the other adults that are kind of living with Tara. Um, but it's like a very, very like adult kind of themed segment of the game. Like they're, it seems like they're having like some kind of like domestic disputes. Mm-hmm. They're not sure whether to even like have a child. It's like, it's really like interesting uh, thematic development. And then, yeah, actually seeing that, that, that the baby was born at the, at the end of the game is a really nice way to tie everything up and kind of just show that there there's hope again in this world, you know, from what I understand, it's actually, they're not meant to be adults. They're uh, supposed to be in their late teens, those two. And they're the, oldest. I mean, in, in JRPG parlance, that means they're basically ancient. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I see a character in an RPG, who's older than like 35, I'm like, are you dead yet? <laughs> oh, don't say like that me. please <laughs> shush um you know one of the sequence uh, a couple of sequences i quickly want to talk about before we move to the end of the game um like there's sequence and uh, we haven't talked about recruiting realm but i think that sequence is super creepy um and like not because of like the house that you walk into because like it, it's like you find out that there is some person who wants like a painting to be correct i can't remember all the details they're not important or that interesting but like realm is the person who's been recruited by this very old man to be in this very private room at the back of this mansion. And this time I was like, wait a second, I don't like anything about this. Uh, please stop. Anybody else creeped out by that? Oh yes. Oh yes. <laughs> yeah. So Posers, I, I, yeah. <laughs> I first, I do do admit that when I first saw Ozer this time around, I was like, Oh my God, it's hedonism bot from Futurama. Um, but (laughs) it is very creepy that realm is just sort of like i'm in a uh, house with no lights 
You're gonna be this creepy old man watching me paint. Somebody call child services. Yeah, it's not. I'm. It, I'm not really sure if that's like the intended reading or not, but it definitely is a very like strange scenario. I don't think so, but it is real weird. Yeah. Like she seems like she's genuinely trying to help him, and like we're trying to like we're supposed to feel bad. Yeah, for it's him, like more of like I a pa- like a artist and like patron kind of thing is how I took it, but it. It is very bizarre. <laughs> I mean, like, Edgar hits on her early in the game. So, like, this game obviously doesn't have a great yeah. sense of, like, the fact that she's nine. And it was worse in the original translation that it is in Pixel Remaster. So, I was going to say, they adjusted that in, in this translation. It's still not good. It's not great. <laughs> yeah, that part stood out to me. And, and I, I, I'm, it's interesting to know that they changed it because I, you know, I don't have any experience with the original. But even in this, when he said that, I was like, what? Is why is Edgar like why is he talking? I think in the original that? he says that he wants to date her when she comes of age, which is worse than like she's going to break hearts, which is what I think that he is says what he says. Yeah, 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 he does. Yeah. Says yeah. This time. Um, but it's pretty rough. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. They, you know, I mean, it's a, it, it's a JRPG, so you know, I, I feel like that's a problem they have with uh, just in general. You have with like a, a that kind of like ladies. He's kind of portrayed as like a ladies' man character, and I feel like a lot of times those characters you know, kind of dip a little too far crossing the line into that. So Yeah, I think I remember even in the world of balance when you first are in Figaro Castle, I ended up talking to this like child NPC and she said something along the lines like, Oh, King Edgar said he'll marry me when I get older or some something like that. I, I don't I don't know if that's verbatim, but it's close <laughs> enough that that stuck yeah. in my head. I mean like out of context, it's like, oh, it's like a cute thing that like an adult says to a girl just to like, you know, I don't know, for whatever reason, just like make her feel better about herself. But in this case, Edgar has a pattern of behavior that I find troubling. So, yeah. Again, let's call child services. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just it's one of those things like, is it supposed to be funny? Like, is it supposed to like, I, I don't know. It's just very uncomfortable. Uh, I don't know, man. I mean, it is it is supposed to be. It- I don't know if it's supposed to, but it is interesting that when you talk to all the other girls in Figaro, they all talk about like gently turning him down. So you get the sense that he's a lovable loser more than anything else. I, I was thinking I think about that the... makes it worse. <laughs> I think it, no, but now going back to it, it makes it worse. Yeah. Edgar's one of my favorite characters. I'm not going to lie, but yeah, no, this is this I is understand. Bad. Yeah, I noticed they play with that at the end as well. Uh, the very or like during the ending sequence while they're all in the airship and it's kind of shuffling the them around. Uh, there's a point where Celis is standing at the railing. Edgar walks up and then she kind of like sneaks away. <laughs> and then while he's not looking, Realm switches in. Oh, God. <laughs> and oh. then he's like kind of oh. like freaking oh. out for a second. And then Sabin comes up and is like shaking his fist at him. I don't think I've ever noticed that before, yeah, but that Celeste, is some or... incel energy for days. <laughs> oh, God. Oh. Continue. So I'm how I, I read that was that, like, uh, Celeste ends up slipping away and going back to, to Locke, which also, like, Ed- Edgar, isn't Locke your, your boy? What, what are you doing? Like, calm yeah. yourself. But then Realm goes up, and uh, she ends up doing, like, a little, like, finger wag. So, like, she's kind of, like, telling, like, Edgar kind of, like, no, not a chance. You're not getting anywhere with that. That's how I read it. Anyways. <laughs> That's slightly yeah, that, better. That makes sense, that I think. Still Makes him a bad bro yeah. instead of well, yes. we, we would rather else. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we would indeed. <laughs> um, 
But, you know, one of the things that I always think is interesting here is, like, a lot of times people will say that, like, Locke is one of the main characters of this game. But realistically, um, like, Locke is one of the last characters you're going to get. Um, like, like for me, like, when I play through this game, like, the Phoenix Cave is, like, one of the very last things I do. Um, but I do actually like that sequence a lot. Um, and I like that it splits your party and, like, it sort of, like, presages the fact that Kefka's Tower is going to be something where you have to have multiple characters, at least semi-leveled. Um, and I like that sequence, and I like the stuff with Rachel at the end of it. Um, and I never have Locke in my party, so like I've watched the YouTube video of like his relationship with Rachel that you learn in the world of balance, which I think makes it much more powerful, which I think is a legitimate way of criticizing this game. Like I feel like, like at that point, like it's like, oh, Locke like, likes this girl. Like We haven't really ever heard anything about her until now. Not really, sort of, kind of, but not really. Um, but I do think that sequence is pretty cool. I just want to know, how does his girlfriend turn into Magicite? Uh, IDK? She, she doesn't. His uh, He brings the shards of Magicite back and it happens to interact with her? Question mark? <laughs> it's just one of those. Because I fully admit that um, I had played um, Final Fantasy Theat Rhythm before I had played Final Fantasy VI, I think. No, actually, I had uh, played it immediately afterwards and when I first played it. And that um, one of the things that I always get uh, pissed at Locke is that in the uh, Theat Rhythm games, the first thing he does if you're playing Terra is he goes, Yeah, you beat a level. Here's some Magicite. It's your dead dad. <laughs> and I'm just like, eh, it's what? revenge. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have not played that particular version of Theater Rhythm what <laughs> it's the yeah the very big like the very first thing or them like if uh you could get characters giving you bonuses at the end and for okay. some reason one of the bonuses at that the end of that was uh of the terra theme was Locke going hooray you beat uh you beat the level here have magicite of your dead dad here have medwin <laughs> yes oh my gosh <laughs> I love that. No, I love that. Oh my gosh, I have to go play that now. I just want to see that sequence. <laughs> I mean, it's it, it's like a five seconds, but at the same time, I'm just like, Locke, you're on thin ice already. Regarding Locke being the main character, one of the things that I've always thought with that is it feels like so. Terra is clearly kind of the central point of the story in the game, like. The story kind of revolves around her, but she, like you were talking earlier, she doesn't really have agency. And it feels like Locke is kind of the one who is used as the guide through the first half of the game. Because even though Terra is one of the main characters, she's not, or is kind of the central character, she isn't in your party for a lot of the first half of the game. Yeah, Locke to me feels like the most, like, um, traditional, like, like, JRPG main character of, like, the main cast. Um, which is kind of interesting because all the other characters I feel like are so different from that kind of um, like self-insert kind of style character you'd see in a lot of games. And not that he's necessarily exactly that, but he just kind of plays that role in the story. Like he has the like, you know, the love interest. He, you know, has this like tragic thing in his past. He's trying to get over. He just kind of fills a lot of those bits um, while not being very central to the story which is kind of interesting especially since people now complain about Vaughn yeah. in final fantasy yeah, 12 comparison. yeah when Locke is a similar he's role. very similar i think to Vaughn. yeah yeah and 
Vaughn definitely gets some unneeded hate. So, yeah. Yeah, but I think he's I think he does play a, a necessary role in in the story just to um, you know, keep it it's I think it's good, especially cuz I think Tara's story, she can't really have those typical like I don't know if you want to call them like Hollywood kind of storytelling moments. And so you, you kind of have that with Locke instead of her. Um, and I think that, you know, it, it's, it has its place, you know, so it, it, you still kind of have some familiar tropes while also getting to have Tara's more unique kind of story. Yeah. And I think it feels interesting that Locke ends up inevitably being one of the, the last things you do in the world of ruin, because like on the one hand, he's, during the world of balance, when you're actually like controlling him, he seems like kind of really looking to be like moving on from kind of his uh, his trauma with Rachel and everything, and like he's, but he's at the same time he's also projecting that uh, protective energy like hardcore on Terra and Celeste, um, and then he's just sort of like missing in uh, the world of ruin, and and Celeste is kind of like in a way the protagonist of the world of ruin half. Because uh, you start as her, um, and really, kind of what what's keeping her going um, after uh, she, she ends up still being alive after after throwing herself off of the cliff is like uh, encountering that bird that has Locke's bandana, and so this kind of ended up being like her motivating factor to keep going. It's like to to find Locke and to have that uh, to have that chance of, of a future with him. And uh, but meanwhile, at the same time, which is really interesting, Locke is just kind of absent. He's become fully dedicated and and obsessed with the idea of like reviving Rachel. And you kind of have to go through that really big dungeon, pretty much like the biggest dungeon in the world of Ruin besides Kefka's Tower. And you find him at like in the deep parts of that cave and he's he's finally done it. And then uh, finally he gets kind of his like conclusion and overcomes his trauma then it's very hinted at that he and Celeste are, are going to be able to have some sort of future together. Well, it's also interesting like in the ending credits, uh, she goes back for the, uh, she drops the bandana and goes back for it mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. the risk of her own life. Um, and sort of tying that lo- the, the beginning and the end of the world of ruin altogether. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when she's like about to, to fall and then like Locke kind of, his sprite literally like slides across the floor and like grabs her. I, I thought that was actually really powerful. I thought that was that was really well done. So uh, I'm glad you're bringing up the ending because um, you know I think it's about time that we talk about Kefka's Tower. Um, we've talked about all these different stories, and I think that Locke's story is really interesting and gets to um, some of the power of the storytelling in this game, how it does it so efficiently. Like we don't see him for uh, huge swathes of the end of this game, and and I think his, his story is still powerful. But then everybody, assuming that you've recruited everyone, which you don't have to, but I fully recommend that you do, uh, because storytelling, I think, is uh, efficient storytelling is what this game does best. Um, You enter Kefka's Tower, which uh, has three, uh, basically has three different paths, which means that you have to break your party up into three separate units. Um, And I always and i still i can't help it i cyan's been so useless for so many years that i still left him on the bench this time even though i know he's less useless he still said goodbye to me <laughs> um and uh Umaro always um and so like, i create my, my my three parties and i and i move through kefka's tower um how'd you guys find kefka's tower this time uh i actually found it maybe a little bit more challenging than normal just because i was way more under leveled than normal this time yeah i, I also went into it uh under leveled and and actually had i think a lot of, of fun because of that 
Uh, it ended up being really challenging. I only had, I think only the three main mages had Ultima for me. So Celeste, Terra, and um, and Realm. And I had one of them in each of my, my three parties. Um, but man, I, I just love the, the idea of this final dungeon. I, I think it's still one of the best final dungeons in, in any RPG. Like the whole idea of like, that this game is kind of like an ensemble cast rather than focalizing on like a single main character. And the fact that you have to like make use of like pretty much every character that, that you have in the game, you have to like kind of think about like the ways they're going to like synergize. You can't necessarily just have like uh, put all your eggs in one basket and have like all your, your best characters kind of together. You kind of have to think of how you're going to divide them across the three parties. And then actually like moving through the tower, you have to, um like one party will get stuck and then you'll have to bring in another one to be able to progress so it's just like such a brilliant way through the level design of of Kefka's tower to actually enforce this theme the game has of like all of these characters like uh finally getting together and being able to work together and and defeat like the the final evil like together um it's, it's still incredibly done yeah it's definitely it has that same kind of difficulty spike, I feel like, that the Floating Continent does, where it is definitely a last dungeon. It is definitely harder than most of the rest of the game. And, uh, like, I still always run into the same problem, which is I put most of my good characters that I've leveled up in two parties, and then I put whoever is next best in the third party with Mog, so they don't have to do random encounters. But then they have to fight bosses. Yeah, I was gonna say, yeah. that makes the things pretty challenging. <laughs> I always do it that way, and it's a terrible idea. I always end up dying at least <laughs> once. Doesn't matter how level uh, high level my characters are. There's always something I screw up, and I always die at least once and go, "Oh nope, gotta go back." Let's balance this out a little better. Yeah, just like the the whole like, because especially like before we had the experience boost. Uh, function like just preparing for Kefka's tower was such an ordeal, uh, such a grind, um, and it still feels like that in a lot of ways. Even even using the the boost because just trying to like get all your your characters to like a decent enough level so they don't get like one shot. Um, but yeah, it's just like uh, it really feels like something you have to like prepare for. And um, I used to just play this game all the time, kind of focusing like a main party, like having my four main characters and going through the world of ruin uh, with them, like as soon as I got them. And this time, I was throughout the entire world of ruin section, I was switching between uh, my characters to try to like get them all ready for Kefka's tower, uh, like from, from like as soon as possible. Um, and it's a really interesting and different way of, of experiencing an RPG, um, just like actually like switching between party members constantly. And it's something that's just still like very unique to this game. Yeah, I mean, I think it is unique. I, other games have done it. Um, like Suikoden 5 uh, makes you do it a little bit. But like those of you who have played Suikoden, like the way that leveling works in those games, like you have like two battles with somebody and they're going to gain like 20 levels um, if they're under leveled. So like that's, it, it feels different there. Um, but here it, it feels like a, a fundamental part of playing the game. And I think that it is actually a barrier for some people. And Ben, I hate to call you <laughs> out. Like, I know you didn't quite finish this game. Um, 
and you were really close from what I hear. Um, so like what, what was the challenge here? And I think it's, it's a legitimate challenge. Yeah. Um, I mean, part of it was just time. <laughs> um, I didn't have a lot of time, uh, to once I got to this, to the end, um, just to make it through. Um, but I also think like the game, there is, there are a couple of points, um, where the game does something similar in the world of balance. Like there's that one part where you're defending, um, a character and you have to like make a, like three separate parties and um, put them in different lanes or whatever to defend them from the soldiers coming up. Um, and so, but other than that, like the game doesn't really prepare you or indicate that this is going to be what you're going to have to do. Um, so that, um, you know, I think is maybe a little bit of a flaw. Um, but on the other hand, I think it's really interesting. It It's the first time where I really felt like I had to think about who's in my party um, you know, having them, you know, their abilities like synergize with each other in a way that they're going to be able to get through um, and complement each other. Uh, and I, I think that's good for like a final challenge um, to to do that. So, uh, yeah, um, but it's definitely, you know, a more difficult part of the game. Um, and uh, but I, I think it's definitely worth it. And if you're going to do it, the, the last the last uh, dungeon is the definitely the place to do it. No, I think that's fair. Um, and I do remember, um, I think the first time I played this game again, when I was very young, I, I went into Kefka's tower and I realized that I was like, Oh, you have to have three parties. Oh, I'm not doing that yet. <laughs> and then, like I backed out. Um, and then like, I went and did like a bunch of grinding. Like I, the first time I played this game, like I think like all, every single person in my party was like level 70 or something, um, which is for the record, those of you listening and you probably know this already excessive overkill. This <laughs> game is not that hard, but I was young and like my grandparents, like my grandma, the last video game she played was like, I think final fantasy five that she talked to me about. And she it's like, she played it for like 270 hours, man. Like I was raised in a grinding culture. Um, Cause I'm from Akron, Ohio. And that's who we are. But like, uh, <laughs> like it was like, it was like, man, I'm not, I don't need to do that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, like, but I, I think that um, I like the challenge. But what I especially like, honestly, is the final battle. Like, I love the conversation with Kefka. I love mm-hmm. the epicness of the rise up. Um, and there was a previous uh, retro encounter episode many years ago at this point uh, with uh, Slosi, Steph and I about Kefka specifically. And we talk a lot about the philosophy of Kefka in that conversation. And I love the way that he crystallizes nihilism or nihilism, or however you want to pronounce it, um, so effectively um, in that conversation. And I think that, um, at least for me, like I felt like I know that like some people so far have criticized, like, hey, like found family, like how can we be found family when we haven't changed at all yet? But I still think that you've spent enough time with most of these people, at least like eight or nine of them. But like, I felt like I knew them. I felt like it hit that, like the bonds between us, um, which was developed in the world of balance. And I think that the bonds that these people have um, in the, in the world that, you know, has been created or that they're trying to deal with like Locke or uh, sets or whoever um, that, that, that they've dealt with, I think is, uh, interesting and I think that it gets to how they're fighting for each other and like I think that so much of it happens silently um, that I think you could argue that like hey it could be developed better but like you literally scoured the whole earth to find your people and you found them and now you're here and you didn't have to do that 
You could have hung out. You could have done whatever you were doing, but you did it anyway. And like placing that and pressing that up against who Kefka is and like his philosophy has merit. Um, like I understand his point um, that people will all die no matter what they build, but like what we build matters. And like, that's the sort of thing that like gets me, man. Like I love near automata because that, that game gets to that. And this game gets to it too, just in a different way. So like, I, and I love the ending sequence too. I love the credits. I love escaping Kefka's tower. Uh, so what did you guys think of the ending? The music. <laughs> <laughs> yes, music definitely. I also have to say that you know there was that whole conversation with Kefka as he's firing lasers all over the earth, and I'm going, uh, guys, can we fit, hurry this up and you know get to <laughs> not letting him destroy the world, please? Um, it's just like you're going, okay, you know, we should get fighting now. Those lasers are getting pretty close to the people. Can we stop? Yeah, no, that that fight, the four part fight with all of the buildup going up to the top is amazing. It's one of the few really challenging sections, uh, you know, where you actually have to plan for several different things that can happen. Um, I mentioned uh, in the pre-show that I actually ended up dying on the my first attempt on it, and the reason for it was real simple. I didn't have a way to prevent mute on my characters. So I kept getting interrupted mid cast because like three of the enemies there would end up muting you. And it's like, I'm so used to just ultimating that fight away. I don't even know he did that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I kept having, so whenever I tried to heal and I ended up swapping into like my, my third tier party by the time I got to Kefka, which I've never had happen before, but it was just like, no, no, you actually have to think about this a little bit and prepare for it. If unless you're high level and have Ultima on everybody. Yeah, and uh I mean we we've all played a lot of uh JRPGs, I think, but uh so so we've also killed God a lot of times, but <laughs> just the representation of just like we already talked about it, that the panning up throughout like the different phase of the fight, like killing God has never felt so epic than with that like pan up all the way to like the top and like into like kind of like that heavenly looking reddish background is just just so good so well done and and that that song of course dancing mad with the the orchestral remastered arrangement is just that hit hard the fact that dancing mad has like what is that four movement it has a separate movement for each step up the ladder it does and yes. it cycles until you transition between the stages and then moves to the next movement accordingly which is the same thing that it does in the you know 20 minute ending <laughs> sequence as well yeah it's it, it's a great phenomenal. final boss fight i mean even though i can't remember what it's like to have that fight be challenging because i do just have i put three spellcasters realm celeste and terra I have Ultima. I have them use it over and over again. I have the gem box in one of them. So they mm -hmm. fire it twice. <laughs> and then I have Sabin, who just fires off Phantom Rush or Bum Rush, whatever you want to call it. And uh, I just obliterate him almost immediately. Um, like it's still, even with the fact that I find it insanely easy with the, the little bit of preparation, it feels so epic. It is like, it doesn't ever say that you're killing God. Like Breath of Fire 2 is my first real kill God RPG. But this one feels like killing God. And it's awesome. 
I just love also for the visual that you're seeing all these different aspects of like the worst of humanity sort of mashed together in this yeah. giant. Yeah, so Dante. Growing. Like I was like, as an English teacher, like Dante's Inferno references. <laughs> yes, thank you very much. <laughs> it's just, it's such an amazing visual that um, just even the, as some people complain, you know, you're not getting the, if the, the way it was meant to be looked at with the CRT experience, but you, it's just, even in its true pixelated form, it's just so well done in such a wonderful put together image that really makes this battle feel like it is the end of yeah, the complexity of all of the sprite work in that, especially which the HD makes it or HD version makes it look even crisper. You can get pick out little details that you might not have seen the first you know, 30 times you played it on for the, the for SNES. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's excellent. And the uh, final sequence um, is also excellent. Like you're escaping Kefka's tower. We've talked about a lot of different moments that happened during that. Um, and then the, there, there's this concern that because you've killed Kefka and you've destroyed the warring triad, that like magic is going to disappear from this world. And like, what does that do to Terra? And I love that um, it boils down to a choice for her. Like it's a choice of like, how connected are you to humanity? And at the beginning of this game, she's not connected to humanity. But then in the end, she is. And I think it's a beautiful ending, honestly. Like, I think that it doesn't explain too much. It resolves the concerns that are important. And I think it is beautiful as a result. I love that they have a solely unique sprite for Tara at that very end when she finally gets up and is like, Yes, I have something to live for. And she pulls off her ribbon and mm-hmm. is just at the tip of the falcon, ready to, you know. That's a stunning shot. It's like cinematic, as someone said earlier. It's it's great. Yeah. I and I am curious. Has anyone ever played through this without recruiting Terra? Absolutely not. I was curious about that too, just how <laughs> that would change the yeah. ending. I I never even looked it up to be honest. Yeah. Like Again, the 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 fact that you don't actually have to recruit everybody makes me kind of curious how that would play out because I feel like it loses a lot of impact without that. <laughs> yeah, I'd be curious to see. I mean, I'm, I think once we're done recording, I'm going to go look it up on YouTube because <laughs> I'm sure someone has. Like, I know there. Are, I was talking to Alana about this before recording, and she's like, "Did anybody do like a three character challenge run?" I'm like, "No, <laughs> we're not sociopaths, except Lucy." Um, Shut so. up. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I I know we're running long, um, but I do have one final question, and it's an important question, and that is, if you were going to rank Final Fantasy VI amongst the oeuvre of Final Fantasy, where do you think it falls? I mean, you, you know my answer. It's it's at the top for me, and um, yeah, just just for like kind of all the reasons we've been uh, describing, just like the kind of what it manages to do with its characters, um, not through like kind of overt storytelling and exposition, but through mechanics like their special moves, um, how, how each character has their own like technique that you can use. Uh, there's a bit of characterization in that through the world of ruin just being kind of this uh, non-linear loyalty mission kind of approach where everybody t- to different uh, levels of, of uh, detail and success um, gets to kind of uh, have their character developed in kind of a more personal and intimate manner. 
um, and just like kind of the, the whole ending sequence, the the final dungeon, the the final boss, and kind of that that whole ending and the way it incorporates kind of and makes use of the the unique visual language of of sixteen bit sprite work and um, Nobu Uematsu's just unbelievable musical score and like use of character themes and motifs and things like that. Like like even if it doesn't hold up. A hundred percent, like just the the pure innovation and the fact that nothing else really offers this kind of experience to this day just makes it a an unforgettable game to me that I'm always happy to return to. So that this uh, just having this podcast was just a great reason to to jump on board by that pixel remaster and and re-experience this game. That is a compelling argument. What about it? What about everybody else? I really do have. I know that it's partially nostalgia, but this game has such a high place in my heart, not just in the Final Fantasy series, but in general of just the, such the unique storytelling, the way that each character is unique in its own special way, and that there is so many little nooks and crannies in this game that are so highly unique. It's just, it's a game that I have replayed multiple times, and I'm probably going to replay again. Because it's just, there's so many wonderful moments in it. And recording this podcast has made me confront some of the bad parts of this game. But I have a wonderful nostalgia screen and it's going to help me keep playing this over and over again. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I totally understand. Lucas, what, what about you? I mean, this is one of my favorite games of all time, even if I do have some criticisms of it. I am somebody who, uh, is willing to examine the things that they love. Um, I still think it's one of the best Final Fantasy games. It's, if not my best, or if not the best, then pr- definitely still top three. And, uh, like, it has a few flaws with the mechanics being a little too simple or gameplay being a little too easy sometimes. It has some problems with the characterization, but all of that stuff is just stuff where I would want more of what it does well. Like, it sets such a high bar for itself with certain points that I feel like I want to hold those other parts up to that same standard, if that makes sense. It totally makes sense to me. I I, I pretty much agree. Yeah, it's like Lost Odyssey, right, Zach? <laughs> no. <laughs> no I, you know, like my, my, my full thoughts on Lost Odyssey recently got published on the site, and I was like, I remembered, like, I was think I was being nice in the podcast, and I was like totally what I thought about the game on those final thoughts, so go read them if you want to see how much I actually hated that game. Yeah, I, I read that uh, this morning, and I could, I could just feel like my blood pressure going up from all the salt emanating out of your words. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair uh so uh ben you're you're one of the new you're, you're the new player among us and i really want to know what you thought yeah um i i have to say um you know someone who hasn't played like like half of the final fantasy series um and the ones i have played are very different i feel like from this game um i did come away uh, enjoying it and i'm really glad that um i played it um because i think that there's there's a lot of ways that when I was playing this, I recognized that other games kind of that would come later took from this game. Um, and even if some of those games maybe executed on those concepts better, um, there's just so much like packed into this game. Um, and I think that's partially like it's one of its strengths and maybe one of its weaknesses as well is that you never 
it never really um, gives you a chance to fully immerse in all of the gameplay concepts that it puts in front of you or develop those fully. But it's such like a wild ride, I guess, from start to finish that um, it's hard to really feel too negatively about it. Um, you know, I, I don't know that I would say it's it's like super top on on the Final Fantasy games that I have played. Um, it it in a lot of ways it's not. Um, it doesn't offer a lot of what I come to games for, but I think the things that it does well, it does so well that it kind of still left like a positive impression on me. You know, the music is beautiful. Um, I like that it's experimental in some of the ways, uh, especially like the little set pieces where the gameplay is changed up and it's using these like RPG mechanics to do something different um, that you wouldn't normally see um, in a game from this era uh, that I thought were really novel and interesting. Um, And then I think it's really cool how the game opens up in the second half with the World of Ruin um, and just gives you a very different tone and feel to everything and lets you kind of go and explore on your own and, um, you know, recruit the characters you want and leave behind the ones you don't. Um, I think it's a very like brave thing for the game to do, especially, um, you know, at the time it came out. So uh, I came away, you know, more positive than, than I was initially for sure. Yeah. And I think that's totally fair. I mean, like I know that nostalgia glasses totally color my ability to, reflect on this game and i think i love that your perspective is new and specific to a new experience um and you know until maybe about for me at the time of this recording we're recording on june 6th uh or june 7th rather um i would have probably called final fantasy 6 my favorite single player uh final fantasy game um 12 is close uh, I think that's about it. Like four, I love probably the most, but like, I know that it four is just a fine game. Like it, it establishes the tropes of the genre, but it's not, it's not really special outside of that. I think in today's climate, um, you know, I, I just finished playing final fantasy 16. And again, spoiler alert, it's the best single player RPG I've played in many years and, um, is stunning and everybody should go play it. <laughs> um, so it, this doesn't, it was, doesn't match up to that. Uh, but this, but Final Fantasy 16 actually pulls a lot from Final Fantasy VI, um, it, and it has a lot in common with it. Um, and I think that some of the strengths of what 16 is doing are pulled from what VI created, and I think it's really important. Um, and I still think that the way that it, it it creates such an epic scope in such a, a miniature medium, um, I think is really great, and I think it's really um, important to the genre going forward and uh yeah i I mean like i i the most important thing to me right now is that i had a blast talking about with you guys um and um hearing a a varying perspective is and learning different things about a game that i've been playing for almost 30 years (laughs) i don't want to talk about how old i am um and uh it was a blast so i hope you guys enjoyed recording as well but uh regardless i really appreciate you guys joining me on the podcast so thank you all four of you um, for chatting about this game. Woo-hoo. Yeah, thanks for hosting, Zach. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. Um, so let's talk about what is coming up, which, uh, to be honest with you, I don't know yet. Um, as you probably gathered from what I just said, um, we are recording this pretty far ahead of when it's going to actually post, um, which I did partially for a lot of reasons. I'm going to be traveling to England at the end of the month, and I knew Final Fantasy 16 was happening. Um, and so uh, we're not sure. 
Um, I know what one thing I can tell you is that I think that the next three episodes will be the last three that are hosted by me and that uh, Slow C will be returning at the beginning of September. Uh, I'm not sure what schedule he's going to use or for sure when that's going to happen. Uh, but that is way more exciting news than anything else I can tell you. So that's good. That's good for everybody to know. Um, we'll do uh, one game journal and then one off topic uh, before he returns. But what those things will be, I do not know. Uh, Summer Games Fest is tomorrow. I'm, you know, there's a lot of different things that I think could happen that might change what we're going to do, especially since we're recording so far ahead. So that's why I don't know yet, to be honest with you. And also Final Fantasy 16 is really good. So <laughs> uh, took up a lot of my time recently. So um, if you want to get in touch with us, um, you can email us uh, retro at RPGfan.com. Uh, so Lucy still checks that with some regularity. Um, you can also get in touch with us lots of other ways. You can get in touch with us on Facebook. Uh, you can get in touch with us on Twitter, Instagram, Discord, YouTube, Twitch streams almost every day. Scott is also an absolute machine. So you, if you want to find RPG fan on the Internet, it's not that hard. You can also find us as a shop. We have an RPG fan shop. You can find a link to that on the site. Uh, if you want to support the site or if you want to just support some RPG fan merch, which I have much of at this point. Um, other ways you can support the site are by listening to our two other excellent podcasts. One is Random Encounter, which posts every two weeks. Um, and it's about current events, it's about uh, games we're playing now. Um, and you can also listen to Rhythm Encounter, which posts the other Monday, those every two, or other those every two weeks. And it is about RPG music. You can also review us, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, you know, however you like listening to podcasts, however you're listening to this podcast right now, you can do that again next time it posts. Um, but before we leave, uh, let's let you know how to get in touch with the rest of our fine panel, starting with you, Lucy. Uh, if you are contacting contacting us on social media, I am one of the people who is reading that. I'm also found almost everywhere as Jess Idris. Um, you know, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, you know, the like. And uh, I'm also the demon you can summon me uh, using a variety of uh, ancient magic. My Ouija board is ready. Alex? Uh, it's just through email, uh, alexfranicek at gmail.com. Check the spelling on the website. And Lucas? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and YouTube at Rafegal, R-A-E-F-G-A-L-L. And uh, I don't think I mentioned it last time, but I release uh, Let's Play videos daily. So uh, lots of content there. If you enjoyed listening to me talk about this game, uh, you can literally watch me play the whole thing. That's excellent. Now, the, now that I know that, I'm going to go check it out just so you know. And Ben. Yeah. Um, so just email for me as well. Um, you can email me at benloganlove at gmail.com. Perfect. I like that so many of you are not super active on social media. Others of you are very active on social media, um, which feels like a very 2023 thing at this point. <laughs> Say the two people who are on the social media team are very active on Indeed. social media. <laughs> Indeed you are. <laughs> and the others don't have any, which I applaud all of you. Um, for me, um, I am actually kind of active on social media, but you can't find me there because like I teach and there's no way. Um, so um, the best way to contact me is ZachW at RPG fan.com emailing me or you can find me on our discord um i'm not on there very often but if you dm me i will see it um zach w um on our discord as well so um thanks everybody for joining us um thank you uh listeners and thank you for talking about um what for me is 
maybe a slightly nostalgic uh, driven uh, favorite, but nonetheless, one of my favorites. And thank you, listeners. Good night and good luck. <laughs>